this time, we're delighted to be joined from the United Nations in Geneva by our special guests, Richard Kozel Wright and uh, Mahmoud El Kahif. Thank you both very much for joining us. A little bit about our guest today. Uh, Richard is Director of uh, Globalization and Development Strategies uh, in the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, uh, otherwise known as UNCTAD. He's worked at the United Nations in both New York and Geneva. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Cambridge in the UK and has published widely on economic issues. Mahmoud is the coordinator of the Assistance to the Palestinian People's Unit, the APPU, the Division on uh, the Division of, on Globalization and Development Strategies. Uh, so you will see that both Richard and Mahmoud work quite closely together. Um, and before joining the United Nations, he was a senior country economist with the African Development Bank and held positions with the federal government of Canada, the Central Bank of Kuwait, and the Institute of National Planning in Egypt. I'm Mark Seddon. Uh, I've been a UN correspondent for Al Jazeera in the past, and I've worked for the UN Secretary General, a former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and uh, last year for the President of the UN General Assembly, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. Now, we before we begin, um, and we, there is going to be a real focus today on Palestine and the United Nations, Palestine and the economy, um, Palestine and uh, the upcoming US elections in November. All topical issues. We're very, very keen to hear from you. Uh, and I know that a number of you have already joined from uh, the States, from India, uh, from the UK, from uh, Italy. So thank you. Uh, we will be taking your questions and putting them to Mahmoud and Richard. Um, and once again, thank you both Richard and Mahmoud for joining us today. And really, I'd just like to begin by asking uh, you, Mahmoud, if I can begin with you, I mean, it uh, seems a fairly obvious thing to say, but the global economy is hanging on a precipice. Uh, there's a pandemic stalking the globe. Uh, it's striking the most vulnerable uh, and seems to be assisted in that process by some of the most incompetent. Uh, this is a, a value judgment on some of the global leadership, but I'd like to begin by asking you, uh, at this time, um, when, especially when the domestic media of various uh, member states is focused just on the COVID-19 epidemic and what it means to that particular country, how how do you raise the the voice of, and the, the 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 pleas and the demands and the needs of of the Palestinians at a time of COVID-19? Well, this is the the, the major uh, problem now. I mean, uh, the attention of the COVID-19 in all developing countries and developed countries is taken away from a serious problem. And and uh, it, it seems that uh, that uh, this a problem will not go away with uh, with the COVID. On the contrary, I think uh, after that, the, the, what's going on uh, with the COVID-19 subside, then we are going to face a real problem with the with the Palestinian people and all over the Middle East. So I think it's a major issue, and I think the media has to play a, 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 a put more focus on, 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 on what's happening on now in Palestine. So it, it, is, it is an issue, and it's taken away the attention for, for an issue deserve more attention, especially about what we hear now about annexation and more annexation. And well, I think it's taken a bit of a better situation. I'll come. I'm, we're going to we're going to be talking about uh, the issue of annexation later, but but actually just on that and uh, your focus on uh, international media and 
and and raising the profile of the pa Palestinians. I mean, at the moment, um, uh, you know, the, the United Nations has gone virtual. The Security Council seems to be in intractable uh, terms, struggling to get agreement on virtually anything. Um, and and yet, at this time, uh, major that we have a, a, a Trump plan, this deal of the century. We have a possibility of annexation, and when Palestinians look to international institutions, they see them barely functioning. So, you know, what what is what is the what is the hope and desire from from people in Palestine now from the United Nations? I think I mean there are two issues. I mean two two parallel things here: the UN country team, that the people in the field, and then uh, people like us here in in Geneva or in New York. I think the the, the need for the support of of the colleagues in the field is very important, WHO, FAO, uh, the UN country team, UNSCO, the peace process. I mean, uh, especially now, what's maybe we'll talk about that in a bit later, about what's going on in terms of finance and, and transferring uh, Palestinian money for, to, from Israel. So uh, the, 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 the function and, and, and the needs for the people in the field, it's actually, it's extremely high now. That's one thing. The other thing is, uh, yes, everything is going virtual, but we are working here on our report to the General Assembly. We are working here about report to the United Nations Trade and Development Board. And uh, we have already, I mean, uh, there are two reports in the pipeline, and these reports focus on what's going on on, on, on the ground and focus on the, the responsibility of the International Committee and responsibility of Israel as an occupying power towards the Palestinian people. So, so it, it is. I mean, it is important that we that we keep going. Well, before I turn to Richard, one last question on that: the uh, the General Assembly uh, at the moment it looks as though it might be meeting um, uh, online. I mean, it, it, the idea that the General Assembly is going to gather uh, in New York in September this it's up in the air. I mean, there. Are, the that there's going to be a Turkish presidency, as you know, there's talk possibly of postponing the General Assembly. Um, but at this time, if there's deadlock in the Security Council, um, and even if the General Assembly is, uh, is, is, is held over or delayed or, or happens online, is there not more that can be done uh, at General Assembly level? Isn't, isn't, there time, isn't it time now for a bit more leverage from the Palestinians with all of their allies in the Global South to, to, to push the General Assembly, you mentioned these reports, uh, to push the General Assembly to be much more proactive. Mamou, that's for you. I'm going to... I'm that's, going to sorry, I know. <laughs> so I thought... Uh, it is... As a matter of fact, I mean, the General Assembly gave us a new mandate uh, uh, about three, four years ago. Uh, and, and General Assembly is very supportive. I mean, uh, the... Uh, recently, they have asked us to 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 assess uh, and then report to the General Assembly on the economic cost of the Israeli occupation. This is a very important exercise. It's an exercise with less because the idea of of keeping the cost on record it's extremely important. Because I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at the the the, the report that have been submitted to 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 you embodies. Nothing is systematic about the impact or what have the Israeli done toward the economy. Nothing is, is systematically recorded and assessed and, and reported. So 
uh, we are dealing with a very difficult issue, an issue that has been there since 1948, and 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 and, and then you have the the the, the the, the COVID-19, before that, you have the, the, the new liberalism and their impact on developing countries. So, so I mean, with, with such an issue, competing with other issues such as new liberalism, such as, as that, and, and so the, the developing countries, Group 77, are, are really, I mean, find it a bit more difficult to focus on a very important issue that will not go away, mm -hmm. the, the Palestinian issues. So, so Given circumstances, I think uh, we are getting a mandate. We are trying to fulfill it, but it's competing with other important issues as well. Well, Richard, I mean, we've we've touched on uh, Mahmoud's mentioned. We touched on the uh, obviously the COVID nineteen pandemic and 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 how this has impacted the international institutions. But also, uh, I suppose my question to you is, and uh, I don't know if you can answer it really, but do you think, to a degree, this uh, whole pandemic is being used? as an opportunity to, 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 to bury difficult issues by the global community um, and just uh, hope that they're not going to get noticed, uh, and particularly, I suppose, the annexation. Well, I don't, I don't think, to be honest, I don't think Netanyahu needed COVID-19 to be pursuing his annexation agenda. That's, that's clear he was going ahead with that. Uh, and, 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 but certainly, I mean, clearly it, it takes attention away from from what should be up front and center on the agenda of the of the international community i mean annexation is a, a the way it's it's happening is a clear affront to international law to endless un resolutions but it's not get as mahmoud said it's just simply not getting the didn't get the attention even when last year um palestine was um was uh, in charge of the g77 i mean which it was last year and we didn't, still didn't get the kind of attention that you would expect. So, so I mean, it, yeah, it's com, it's a, it's complicating everything. But and that, I mean, if you take a if, take the um, the impact of what is going on now in the United States on this question, I think, I mean, I, I'm, it's not clear to me that Netanyahu actually would have liked the COVID-19 to be taking place because it's it's triggered all these emotions around Black Lives Matter, around the militarization and brutalization of, of police activity, all of which have a parallel in the Palestinian context. You know, you can't talk, you can't address the, 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 the kind of this, this uprising of concern all of a sudden about the, the, the problem, the endemic problem worldwide of racism. I mean, the Palestinian issue is very much part of that, of, of, of that, of that narrative. So in a way, it may be the case that, that the mm. consequences of COVID, particularly in the political context of the United States, can bring the Palestinian issue actually more to the center stage of discussions, particularly in, in, an, in an election year there where where you know everything is seen through the lens of an election so so yeah. it's uh, yeah at the moment it's having this i think this chilling effect on the palestinian issue whether that will remain the case i'm not so sure really well it's interesting you say that um richard because um i mean you will have seen this that there have been some uh, quite strong declarations uh, of uh, Palestinian solidarity to the uh, leaders uh, and and those involved in the in, in the BLM movement, and so that parallel 
is kind of uh, being played out on uh, on on the real uh, in real time. Uh, but I just wonder if I could just step back um, a minute for, from those issues and actually to, to focus, on to, especially for some of the people who are watching uh, this from around the world and who may not know um, a great deal about uh, uh, UNCTAD as an organization and how it is that actually um, both of you, but this question is directed to, to Richard to begin with, both of you and your organization is able to champion uh, the Global South in a way that perhaps other UN agencies aren't. I mean, you are, you can be, you do have a degree of uh, freedom that perhaps other uh, agencies uh, don't have. So can you just give us, Richard, some idea of the kind of setup there, you know, why UNCTAD has got this historic uh, relationship with uh, Palestine in, in particular? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it's in a, in a, what, in 35 seconds, I guess, Mark, a history of a 60-year-old institution or something like that. I would, look, we were set up in 1964. We've often been referred to as a trade union for the developing world. Uh, you know, the institution was set up by, it's probably the only institution really set up in the multilateral system by and for developing countries, even though we have universal membership, like all, uh, uh, other UN bodies, a universal body, but it's very. It was set up with the, with the understanding that the international rules of the game that were forged immediately at the end of the Second World War were done by and for, and in the interests of the advanced economies. And uh, as a consequence of that, as more and more developing countries became independent in the 1950s they had to address all the biases and asymmetries and gaps in that system that made uh, the, the, the objective of, uh, of, of economic progress, having achieved political progress, but of economic progress, all the more difficult. So, so you know, we, we were set up with that, in a way, we were set up with that activist agenda uh, fully in mind of uh, when, 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 we, when, when, when we began to operate in 64. And uh, and and that and and in a way that's given the secretariat a certain amount of independence uh, to be able to pursue development issues independently of the specific challenges that countries face. Because all develop, different developing countries face all kinds of very specific problems. So they're all united by the fact that they face obstacles at the international level that can only be addressed collectively. So, and the Secretariat's job in that context has always been to highlight the kind of biases and asymmetries and including those that emerge out of power asymmetries. I mean, ultimately development challenges reduce to uh, imbalances of power in the system. And if, you know, and, and I think in that context, but Mahmoud can speak more directly to the origins of it in UNCTAD, you know, I mean, the, the it, it's pretty apparent that the, the plight of the Palestinian people reflects these huge political and economic asymmetries uh, that uh, other developing countries face in in different ways, but but nonetheless have to face up to. Uh, you know, the specifics of the Palestinian situation uh, have its own uh, dynamic and and. and and particular policies, but you know it's part of a world that is rigged in the favour of those uh, with the economic and political resources. So I mean, and and so it's our and, and you know that's the job of UNCTAD to try and address and to think about solutions 
to developing country problems, not at the country level, not, not in terms of what other agencies do in terms of technical assistance at the country level, but in trying to rethink the multilateral rules of the game in ways that uh, correct for those economic and political uh, imbalances in resources and power. Um, thanks, Richard. Um, and Mahmoud, um, I mean, you know, a lot of people will have heard about the uh, United Nations uh, Relief and Works Agency, for instance. It's uh, one of the first UN agencies, long uh, history working uh, with uh, the Palestinians. Um, we now know rather more about UNCTAD. Uh, but tell us, tell us, if you will, uh, how it is that, for instance, uh, your uh, APPU came to, to be. I mean, your, um, you, you know, how, how, you know, how does the um, the special assistance unit for the Palestinian people uh, uh, operate? I mean, you mentioned that the work that you do, do with for the General Assembly, but how do you prevent any kind of overlap? And I suppose, you know, what is what is the main kernel of your work for Palestine? I guess the only exception in Anikad for the country level is Palestine. Palestine is the only country or the only people that has a unit within Anikad. And uh, just uh, it was established in the mid 80s as a matter. And, and the first mandate that we got is to assess the impact of the Israeli policies on the Palestinian economy. Uh, that was the, the, the very first mandate that was given to us. With the establishment of the Palestinian National Authorities in 1994, actually we start to, to, to move a bit toward capacity building, uh, especially in the what we call the hope years, uh, the period after in 1994 till, till 2000, till the eruption of the Second Intifada on uh, 28th uh, September 19, uh, year 2000. Uh, uh, during that period, we helped the Palestinian Authority to establish something like its custom authority uh, in the area of demand uh, debt management in the area of trade facilitation. But recently, with the with the with the uh, slowdown in the peace process, and now what's going what, the the period that we are living through now, we start to go back again toward the area of. of assessment the impact of the Israeli policy uh, on the Palestinian economy. Uh, what's very important since actually six years ago, we got a new mandate from the Assembly, as I said before, asking Anikdad to assess, uh, evaluate, and then report to the GA on the economic cost of the Israeli occupation. As I said before, that was not done before. Uh, how much did the occupation cause the Palestinian people in terms, uh, if we say that in, in, since, the, since the occupation 1967, there were more than 11 million productive trees has been uprooted. Uh, the record of what the, what the economic impact, what's the cost year after year to the Palestinian people, that has not been done before. I think very uh, in the last two or three years, we, we become more focused on these issues. We have an issue with resources to, 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 do, to, to, to do this mandate, but we are trying to do it and try to keep it on record. Uh, this record has to be there, if not this year, next year. Uh, the overlap, nobody within the UN system does work on the economy of Palestine in the area of development, the area of trade, the area of investment. Nobody is doing that. So we are with it. There is the World Bank, there is the IMF, but that's another story. I mean, again, I mean, the World Bank IMF 
they use they, they deal with Palestine as if it's a normal developing country and they give Palestine the the normal prescription, which basically fiscal austerity and so on. So uh, in terms of overlapping, there is no overlapping. There is a UN country that will give them support, will give advice service to to Palestinian NGOs like uh, Mass, the the Institute for Assessment of, uh, of, of Economic Policy Analysis. We give support to the UN country team in terms of, of, of the impact of economic issues. Uh, so in terms of overlapping, there is no overlapping. In terms of focus, I think we are more focused now on the economic cost of the Israeli occupation to keep things, to put things on record for mm. the future. Uh, Richard, if I can quickly uh, turn to you. Um, you know, almost wherever you look, and I mean, and, and looking at some of the work that uh, Mahmoud has been doing about the Palestinian economy, you can see that so much of the progress, that the period of uh, that you were just talking about after 1994 of hope, uh, you know, when there was economic expansion. I mean, everything has been thrown off course uh, by COVID-19. Of course, there are other issues too, but I mean, even to the level of the 140 odd thousand uh, Palestinians who usually go to work in Israel every day, obviously have been prevented from, from doing so. That's just one level of the economic collapse in the Palestine economy. Now, this collapse in the Palestine economy is kind of mirrored, you would, you would imagine, elsewhere. So on the, the broader level, you've been doing a great deal of work around the idea of a green new economy, um, you know, and, 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 and reordering uh, the global economy. And you would think that after this particular pandemic, the demand for substantive change is going to be very, very, very powerful. Um, so your argument might get strengthened. But, you know, practically for a small territory like Palestine, whose economy has suffered a great deal, you know, what what immediately can be done post-pandemic? Well, I, I mean, you know, as Mahmoud said, that, you know, the there are these generic challenges that the Palestine faces that we can we can make a positive contribution to, but you know the politics of the Palestinian challenge constantly impose on 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 on, on that situation and, and gives it a unique uh, quality, which you know it makes it very difficult to to extend policy advice. You know, I mean, the kind of generic policies that the World Bank and the IMF offer you just don't make sense if you take it out of the political context that defines the uh, possibilities of the, of the of the Palestinian authority and the Palestinian people so you know I, I, it's it's I mean that that side of it is just a, a constant a, a constant challenge uh, you know again it goes I think in terms of the work we do on more generally on the need to find more inclusive and sustainable and resilient uh, uh, futures for developing countries uh, around ideas of a of a global green new deal you know ultimately rests on it's not it's, this is not just a kind of technical uh, or, or 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 simplistic kind of policy model it's a recognition of the need to change a set of rules of the game that have been rigged over the last 40 years in favor of powerful countries and powerful corporations the two often being mutually supportive of each other. Um, you know, so again, and it goes back to the, the question you asked before about, about the, the distinct nature of Angtad. It's the willingness, I think, to bring in the power dim the dimension, the political economy dimension 
into the challenges that we face that distinguishes UNCTAD from other UN uh, institutions. And that's just as much true of the work on, on the Palestinian economy as it is on other areas of work that we do. And I think, you know, and I think, I think that does give us an ability to say things uh, that, uh, that about both the specific challenges of countries and the, and the wider global challenges that, that makes our work different. And there are some interesting parallels, but, you know, one of the big issues as Mahmoud has, has written about in the work that we do, and one of the big challenges that faces the Palestinian uh, economy is the problem of water and access to water. It's an endless problem. And, and the way in which Israel, again, rigs the rules of the game that essentially make it very difficult for Palestine, both in agriculture and in, in industry, to use that basic resource, which, which strictly speaking, is, should be under their control. I mean, it's part of the, of the Palestinian territory. But because the rules of the game are rigged against them, makes it you know, very difficult to, to forge a, a, a consistent economic path forward. That's true. I mean, that's going to be a, bit, a massive issue as the climate changes and we get all the problems uh, emerging around rising global temperatures. Water is going to be a huge issue. In that sense, you know, Palestine has a lot of worrying uh, implications for the, the, the future challenges of many developing countries as resources are controlled more and more tightly by those who have already gained advantages from this hyper-globalized neoliberal world. So, I mean, I think bringing this kind of issue of the interplay between economic challenges and political asymmetries, power asymmetries, is something that is central to our work in general, but I think very relevant to the, the, the Palestinian uh, challenges in particular. You see, I mean, listening to Richard there, um, Mahmoud, when you consider um, uh, a, a, a typical a member state of the UN uh, developing economy, um, it doesn't really it doesn't really cross over to the Palestinian experience, if you like. The West Bank, a cantonized uh, territory, uh, Gaza, which has been I think there have been three consecutive military uh, campaigns by Israel in Gaza, where the the whole infrastructure is kind of almost destroyed in order to be rebuilt so you keep having to have this kind of year zero rebuild of the of, of, of Gaza let's let it not be forgotten one of the most densely populated places on the planet uh, and then of course you know you get this crisis with the pandemic on top of it all I mean it must be very very difficult to try and get some sort of coordinated um, economic policy for the Palestinian territories this is true this is true i mean it, it, it's, uh, coordination between the west bank and gaza is very difficult i mean uh, add to this what's happening i mean but what we're trying to do actually in, in in one of the most recent studies is what's i mean if you look at there there were three wars and gaza is under blockade since june 2007. there are bits and pieces here about how much the destruction, 2 billion here, 4 billion there, but nothing so far. How much, what if there, there, were, there, there, there were no blockade and no wars? How much would the Palestinian in Gaza been able to produce, produce with their own? I mean, Gaza now has no production base whatsoever. I mean, if you look at the, 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 the manufacturing and agricultural sector in Gaza, it has been, I mean, uh, almost 
shrunk by half. I mean, it used to be uh, in, in, in 1995, this productive sector in Gaza was 34% of the economy. Now it's about 20%. But if you look at Gaza's economy contributions of the Palestinian economy, between 19, uh, between uh, uh, 2006 and, and 2018, it went down from 31% of the Palestinian economy to 18% of the Palestinian economy. What we are trying to do is to quantify, to put some figures, how much do the Palestinians lose in terms of, we are not talking about death here, we are not talking about, nobody could put a, 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 dollar, a dollar sign on, on a loss of life or a loss of, 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 of the ability to, for a household to earn. But the economy, the, 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 the Palestinian people in Gaza, how much did they lose? How much do they lose every year? And who's responsible for this? Is the occupation? I mean, Gaza is under blockade for now almost 13 years. Mm. There were three wars. Well, you know, but if I may interrupt you there, I mean, there's a, there's a question that kind of follows on from that, from, um, and I'll ask Richard about this too, but uh, from uh, Fahid Abu Akhil, uh, Fahid asks, uh, do you know why the 22 Arab states, including the 52 Muslim states, are not able to use their political power? Suppose they returned their ambassadors to the United States uh, from Washington until Congress changes its policy towards Palestine. Um, would that uh, help end the uh, 52 years of occupation? Would it make a difference? Um, I think, so that's the question about kind of a, a wider solidarity. Um, like, where is it? Uh, and how, how can it how can it be engendered? And I'll ask you that first, uh, if that's all right, Mahmoud, and I'll ask Richard. Well, uh, I mean, you have to put this in, in, in not, not only political context, but also historical context. I mean, uh, I mean, look at the Middle East now, look at the Arab world now. I mean, you have a problem in Syria, you have a problem in Libya, you have a problem in Yemen, you have a problem in Sudan. And, 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 and so the, the focus is, is, is becoming very thin on, on, on Palestine. But, but if you look at it again, I think in my opinion, the, 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 the core issue is Palestine. The core issue is, the, is, is, is what happened since, not only since 1948, but even be, uh, since, since, since Balfour Declaration. So, so it, it is a dynamic issue. I mean, the, 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 we have the Palestinian people here. We have Gaza again. And, and, and uh, so uh, it, it is very difficult to answer this question. But, mm -hmm. This issue continue to be. It's, I mean, it, you cannot just brush it under the rug. I mean, it will mm. not go away. Mm. Uh, but our job again, I just want to continue. What uh, is to keep this the, mm. the things on record because this issue won't go away. Occupation is there, blockade is there. There are two million people are as as has been said in an open in the giant open air prison. Yes. And somebody has to pay for them. A prison where, incidentally, the prisoners have to feed themselves. There's a, there's a question here. Uh, this is a question. The problem, excuse me, they have to feed themselves if they have, if they have the mean to feed themselves. That's yes, yes. If, well, that makes it even worse. Uh, Richard, this is for you. Sam Bahua, uh, he says, um, but we, we haven't prompted Sam to send in this question, by the way. But he says, welcome all. I am a regular consumer of UNCTAD's excellent work. My question is, has UNCTAD engaged Egypt in terms of opening the Gaza-Egypt border uh, and bringing more, uh, helping with trade facilitation? 
I think Mahmoud's better place to answer that. But I mean, I mean, look, there's a there's a there's a bigger question behind your question mark about the whole notion of the solidarity in the South. I mean, obviously, UNCTAD and 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 our strength in our first twenty or thirty years was based on on a, a, a fairly high level of solidarity amongst G seventy seven countries, and that uh, that culminated in an effort and a very serious efforts to establish a new international economic order in the 1970s through the General Assembly and the UN processes. Um, you know, the, and that failed ultimately. It failed for all kinds of reasons, but primarily it failed because developing countries themselves in the uh, 1980s went into very serious crises, crises that were in many respects instigated by the advanced economies, particularly the United States. And, you know, the South has been a much more fragmented animal for the last 20 or 30 years than it was in, in, in its first 20 or 30 years, at least within UNCTAD. Um, and that's and that's difficult. And, now, and that's true of the Arab world, too. I, I, mean, I mean, the Arab world is not a it's not a solid political uh, force. And, you know, this again goes back to the South. You know, Kissinger was manipulating the the. The, the 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 Arab world from the from the 1970s on. I mean, this was about oil as much as it was about Palestine back in the in the 1970s. But you know, there's not. I mean, the notion of a, a very solidaristic block that could somehow act in unison to 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 push for a solution uh, of the Palestinian problem, which we you know, which we would like to see, has not really been on the cards for the last. Mm. You know. The 1970s was when that that option seemed to be on the table, right around around the the use of oil as a as a political weapon to some extent. That, that that's that's not the world we're in. I think it's not the world we're in anymore, Mark. You know, and and so and, you know, I mean, the only two countries I think that Israel technically has a has a peace treaty with are Egypt and Jordan, right? Are the only two countries that that, that Israel, but you know. <clears throat> the rest is fragmented along all kinds of different lines, political, religious. So there is not solidarity in the Arab world that can that can really bring about a solution, I think, at this moment in time. And, and, and that's part of the tragedy of the Palestinian people right now. Yeah. Richard, you mentioned just there uh, Jordan and Egypt. So I'll, ta I'll take that question from Sam Bahur to you, Mahmoud. Um, and that was the question about, uh, you know, has UNCTAD um, been engaged with Egypt in terms of, uh, putting pressure on Egypt to to open the the border with with Gaza, um, I mean that has real really been a terrible choke point, as you know. No, and this is not an UNCTAD mandate. I mean, I don't think we are we are involved in the political pro we are not involved in the political process. Our mandate in this area is to keep record, is to to assess situation and report to to member states. Uh, but what we can see is is also the occupying power has to. It, 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 it has to carry its own responsibility. Uh, if you look at, 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 at the, 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 the crossing between Gaza and, 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 and uh, the West Bank and, and, and Israel itself, there are five crossings. Only one of them is operating now. And also it's operating on very exceptional basis on, on medical re for medical reasons, but very exceptional basis. So as far as, as putting an attack to put pressure on, on, on a specific country or Egypt, another country, I don't think an attack is in, in a position to, to do this. The, the other uh, way for the president to get out to the world is, is Rafah, 
And uh, I think between, uh, I have the figures here, between between 2007 and 2018, uh, Rata crossing was open uh, 2,126 days and closed uh, almost the same number. And most of this time, it was between 2014 and 2017. With 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 the with especially with after 2014, with the, that was a major military operation that Israel uh, imposed on 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 Gaza. So it's it's a political sensitive situation, and we are not in to 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 put pressure on 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 any member states. But we are in a position to report to member states for them to take a decision. I I get I get that. Uh, I suppose the question might also be, and this has been raised by a couple of other people as well, which is looking at, um, particularly at Gaza uh, and and its and its situation now with the endless blockade and the terrible suffering there. If um, and this maybe this isn't a question that you ca- you can answer, but uh, I mean technically, would it be possible if the people of Gaza say, well, just for a just for a while, we want to become a UN trust territory? Um, that 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 could break the blockade. Is that something that could be even thought about, or is that is just is that just so way out there? It's not even worth um, a second thought. I don't think that would be a good idea. I mean, uh, the 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 solution is to end the blockade. Mm. Uh, well, well, will it help end it? Would it would it help end it by becoming a, a UN trust territory just for a, for a, a short period, for instance? Would it hasten the end of the blockade? I don't think so. I don't think so. On the contrary, I think this will relieve the pressure of the occupying power to 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 carry its own responsibility. It may it may it, it, it deepen the, the the divide between Gaza and the West Bank. It may establish a new pact uh, on the ground. I don't think that would be a good idea. I think the international community has responsibility toward the Palestinian people, and has uh, Israel as the occupying power has a responsibility toward. Uh, toward the Palestinian, toward its own citizen as well, the, the the blockade has to end, the occupation has to end, uh, and 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 to end this giant prison, uh, open yeah. air prison. I mean, it, 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 I mean, this, I don't think that happened ever in history. I mm. mean, you have two million human beings on under siege now for more than thirteen years. I mean, it's 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 just incredible. I don't know. I mean, uh, and 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 to put it under um, this has to end. Uh, and uh, and, al- and also, I mean, I mean, it's a kind of sad. It's a sad state of affairs, I guess, that a hundred years after Palestine became a trust under trusteeship in the League of Nations, exactly. which is part of the problem. As we, I mean, this is the part of the origins of the problem, right, Mark? that somehow a hundred years later becoming a trusteeship again might provide a solution to this what is you know what is on any other any criteria it's an affront to international law it's a front an affront to international de- decency uh, that somehow we can't as an international community confront what is the real problem which is the abuse of an occupying power by addressing that problem but rather trying to kind of stitch together solutions that failed in the past as a possible way of alleviating this i mean there's something pretty tragic about that state of affairs well, it, 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 it strikes me that you know this uh, we're coming to a point given the uh 
the stated plans of the Netanyahu Gantz administration towards annexation, uh, and um, also the fact that uh, they, they, this uh, Israeli government believes it has a, a kind of a green light from the U.S. administration. Now, this week, as you know, the, the uh, EU, uh, the, the German foreign minister was uh, in Israel. He didn't go to the West Bank, but he met with Netanyahu. Um, he, he restated uh, the EU's position because it's the German presidency of the EU right now. He restated uh, the position of the EU uh, on international law, but said absolutely nothing about um, what consequences there could be as far as the EU is concerned if this annexation goes ahead. I suppose the question is, um, should it go ahead? Uh, and then Palestine decides, actually, we are going to seek a recognition as a sovereign state now. We're going to forget all of this talk about a two-state solution because the two-state solution has been dead in the water for a lot for so long, and this is the final nail in its coffin. Um, is that perhaps is that perhaps why there's a there's a degree of reluctance from the EU and others to see this uh, annexation go ahead because they don't want to be faced with that stark choice? And what do you think? Um, uh, Richard, go ahead. Richard, yeah. What do you, Richard? What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I get. I look. I, I guess notionally, we still in the UN stick to the two-state solution mm. as being the framing of the of the challenge. I mean, you know, obviously, the the reality is is very different. But it's. I mean. It's it's equally difficult to think of a one-state solution, which is uh, which many you know progressive people have, including in Israel itself, have advocated for a long uh, a, a long time. So, so to some extent, I mean, you know, I'm not sure if framing it in this way is is the right way. I mean, we're looking we're looking for ways in which the 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 treatment of the Palestinian people. You know, can be can be somehow alleviated. I mean, that's I mean, that's what we're looking for. I mean, that's the that's the the abuse of both um, uh, the the international uh, law and of the uh, uh, prospects of, of 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 the Palestinian population itself. You know, should be enough. One would hope to think about ways of of addressing uh, the problem. Um, and uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I, personally, I mean, this is a personal view. You know, the tr the two the two thinking of the Palestinian uh, Palestinians as a as a as a a, a, a people uh, basically suggests to me that you know, if they're going to survive as a people, they they need state structures to do that. That's I mean, I, you know, that's that history tells you that. So. So, you know, how do we make sure that, for example, the Palestinian people have control over their um, fiscal regime, which, you know, is the basis of any state. Any, any state must be in control of its, its fiscal revenues. That is not the case in, quite clearly now in, in, because Israel has hundreds of ways in which it essentially blocks the revenues that the Palestinian people are entitled to from getting to the Palestinian people. We know that. So, I mean, in a way, we the work that we do is an attempt to find solutions to these very specific problems that ultimately, in my opinion, point towards 
a, alter, a state structure for the Palestinian people. But, you know, trying to focus on these very, you know, the issue of water, the issue of fiscal revenues, uh, these, you know, trying to kind of come up with real practical solutions uh, 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 on those specific challenges is the kind of way in which we've tried to go uh, in, in the work that we, that we do. I, I, I personally think it ultimately does mean a two-state solution, but in the politics, in the current politics of the day, as you're right, Mark, I mean, you know, since the Oslo Accords, that's not, that's just gone down, that's so far gone nowhere, that's clear to, that as well. But ultimately, that's how, you know, keeping pressure on and focusing on those elements of, a, of an effective state structure, I think, is the, is the way that we can contribute to, to finding a way forward in a very in a very difficult political uh, mm. set of circumstances. And, and, and Mahmoud, there's another question here uh, saying, I'm assuming UNCTAD's uh, reports are sent formally to Israel. Uh, has, Israel has Israel replied to any of them in writing? No. <laughs> they have, they, they, sometimes they do have comments uh, during the discussion of the, of the report, but uh, uh, several times they have sent to our Secretary General here in Anaktad uh, saying that this report is, is, is not objective and so on, but uh, no, they have not replied officially. But I just want to go back to the issue of, of uh, uh, Anaktad position. Officially, our position, Anaktad position, is a two-state solution with Gaza West Bank, including East Jerusalem, uh, as part of the occupied Palestinian territory. What's happening on the ground? Are we heading toward two-state solution? I don't think so. I mean, uh, two-state solution day after day with, with what being proposed by the U.S. government and then the, the, unilateral, acti the unilateral action by Israel is taking away the international community away from, from, from two-state solution. Demographic, demographic is different. I mean, you have, you have Israel about uh, six, six, 6 million uh, population maybe 1.5 million of them Palestinians, and then you have the West Bank and Gaza, that's 5 million, and then you have the refugees, and this about 18 millions. I mean, uh, the, 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 the issue here, the, the, the Palestinian cause will, no, will never go away. The Palestinian people will never go away. The, a two-state solution, as, as Richard said, it is a feasible solution, but it needs the cooperation of the Israeli. I mean, the apparatus of the government, and Akhtar was part of that. We have helped the Palestinians to, to establish a custom authority. This is a sovereign authority, but now this, the, all of these uh, uh, pillars of a government, uh, of, of sovereign government, is being basically, uh, it's being eroded. So are we heading toward that? Uh, uh, one sacred state, maybe that's it over the history. I mean, uh, look at the history of South Africa, ultimately, I mean, but sustainability mm -hmm. of such a political and geopolitical condition, it, it's not sustainable over the, over the, over the long history. Uh, the UN position now, two is still the two solution, but is it feasible? The feasibility of this solution is becoming less and less with the action of the occupying power and uh, its support from, from the US government, uh, but, but, the United States Secretary General actually made a statement after the the the, the peace initiative by, by the U.S. government uh, last year. So, uh, well, I mean, it, we we're sort of in our closing moments now. So, I wanted really to ask you both. I mean, 
given that there's going to be a presidential election in the United States in November, and given that uh, currently uh, Democratic uh, nominee Joe Biden appears to be uh, percentage uh, percentages ahead of Trump, um, if there is a change of administration in the United States in November, does this uh, does this roll back the annexation plan? Does this make it much more difficult for Netanyahu to do what he wants? Does it put the uh, does it put the onus back on the two state solution again? And and uh, I mean, it, I mean, what you know, it's been two steps back. Is this one step forward? Richard, what do you think? <laughs> one step forward with Joe Biden. Yeah. Look, I, I, um, I, I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure about that, Mark. It's, I don't, I don't know the discussions inside the Democratic Party. Obviously, we knew, you know, when Clinton uh, uh, was a candidate against Trump, you know, there were, there was an attempt to embrace, bring in Bernie Sanders and some of his positions, which on the Palestinian issue were, I think, much more progressive. But you know, I, I, I don't have a great faith that the Democratic Party will will move in a significant way to find a solution. It won't be. It, it will be. It, it will be less. It won't be. It won't be the same kind of aggression that you see from the current administration. But I don't know if there if in, if there is the internal dynamic in the U.S. still yet to come up with solutions. You know what? And and in a way, what I, I you know what, just on a personal level, what I find more troubling is the is the attitude of the wider international community to be quite frank you know i mean the out the kind of outrage that we've seen towards china vis-a-vis -vis hong kong for a, a change in some of the rules there that has that has kind of uh uh you know generated a degree of uh, of, of hostility towards china uh, from the European powers and, and and some of the other advanced economies, you know, is quite it, it's quite in, uh, the contrast with the the lack of concern with the uh, with the with the Palestinian situation, despite the fact that the breach of international law that we're talking about in the Israeli context pales into significance in comparison with, with what China is doing with what is notionally part of its own territory. Right. I mean, I mean, the, the contrast is quite shocking, actually. And and, and that's and, and uh, that's not Trump that you can't blame Trump for that kind of attitude. I think it's there's uh, I think the international community, the, the advanced economies and the Europeans in particular, despite some of the uh, positions that countries like Sweden have taken, for example, which have, have been much better. But, you know, given the given the affront to international law, that is that is demonstrated on a daily basis here. I think it's. I, I don't. I think we need to get beyond the let's blame Trump for all these problems and start really looking much more systematically at the failure of the advanced economies as a block to address this problem in a systematic way and really find and and, and find lasting solutions. I think well, that's the real issue. Taking your point, um, Richard. I mean, Mahmoud, you would have seen the uh, the EU uh, was very strongly critical of Russia when it annexed Crimea um, and did institute a sanctions regime of sorts. The German Foreign Minister in his trip to Israel this week didn't even the word sanctions didn't even pass his lips. 
So that kind of follows from what Richard was saying. But I suppose what I'd like to ask you in the final moments, both of you, but starting with you, Mamid, is looking into your crystal ball and looking at um, the Middle East and Palestine, Israel, 20 years hence. You know, how, how do you think things can pan out? And given what you just said, crucially, about the demographics and the Palestinians not just going away, how might it look in 20 years' time? As I said before, the UN official position to state solutions is Jerusalem, West Bank, and Gaza. Are we heading in that direction? No, we are not heading in that direction. Uh, occupying power imposed certain facts on the ground. The international uh, uh, political environment is not forthcoming. Uh, going back to your question about uh, about the internal politics in the U.S., is not it's not forthcoming. I would I mean the uh, I mean Barack Obama administration only in the very last few days they have abstained from from Security Council Resolution 2334 in which basically stated that the settlement in the West Bank are uh, uh, is a flagrant violation of international law. Uh, so looking at the history, looking at the present, looking at the political conditions, I think we are getting, uh, getting far away from the two-state solutions. But maybe more than 20 years, I think, uh, ultimately, people have, have to learn to live together. And uh, some kind of, of sanity has to prevail. And uh, either one state or two states, some equal rights has to, has to prevail. Thank you. Richard? Well, you want a, a kind of utopian kind of vision to end on now. Look, I mean, there are. You can, you know, if oil, oil, if 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 we've reached peak oil and the world is shifting to a different energy system, that will have a big impact. If the dollar, as the dominant currency, becomes lesser, because you know, when it comes to the the ability of the U.S. to impose sanctions on countries. Uh, the, the dollar is the key instrument in that that gives the U.S. a lot of power in the in the world. Um, if if there is a if 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 there is countervailing more countervailing power from Russia and China in 20 years' time that allows developing countries in general the space to be able to fashion different types of futures. If the young Israelis, many of whom themselves are, I mean, there are movements inside Israel of young Israelis who are also uh, 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 unhappy with the kind of uh, racism that they see uh, uh, around them as a consequence of the actions of the current government. You know, if these things do kind of come into place, then there are clearly the, the, the geopolitics of the Middle East changes quite dramatically, and there are genuine options, I think, then for 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 political change. But you know, the current makeup is it's it's difficult to be optimistic given the current geopolitical uh, situation that uh, the the situation is going to improve anytime anytime soon, unfortunately. But there are you know there are these changes that we see, and COVID nineteen may well accelerate some of those changes actually. And if this if the developing world can somehow itself regain the solidarity that that 
in a way, put uh, pal the Palestinian issue into the UNCTAD agenda, if we can regain that sense of a solidarity in the South, then these are all, you know, forces that could could make for a, a, a more positive agenda. And whether it's a one-state or a two-state solution, bring a degree of kind of inclusivity and 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 democracy and and decency ultimately to a situation that lacks all three of those things at the moment well thank you richard and thank you mahmoud i mean in fact we did actually see it. a, a little glimmer of hope perhaps this past week in tel aviv where some thousands of israelis and palestinians came together um to oppose the annexation plans um uh, just a straw in the wind but um but i'd like to thank you both very much for joining us today from Geneva from all of us here at Palestine Deep Dive for everybody behind the scenes who um, made this happen. Um, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Mahmoud. Good luck to good luck to you and all that you're doing. And uh, we hope to speak to you again. And until next time, that's all from us. Thank you very much. Oh, very finally, Heather from Italy has said, really excellent conversation. Thank you. So there we are. Thank you both. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. A pleasure. Same here. Thanks.